Do I have any more outlines? No, I haven't went to the copier place yet. I will do that, and I'll bring more outlines of number one and number two tomorrow. But I haven't gotten to do that yet. Yeah. Anything else? Let's just dive in. I'm sure we'll raise some questions as we get into this. All right. Well, glad you're back. Um, today we're going to talk about some of the important doctrines that we really need to understand if we would think rightly about the arts. Okay? Some important doctrines that have bearing upon the arts. Um, the arts really are addressed more indirectly in a lot of ways in the Bible. And there are a number of doctrines that have implications for how we think about the arts. Um, some of them that we're going to talk about today are general revelation, common grace, um, sin, and particularly the idea of idolatry. And then we're going to give some um, implications of understanding those doctrines, right? So that's where we're going. General revelation. General revelation. God speaks to us all through creation. I mentioned this briefly yesterday. Um, there's some repetition here, but we're going to go into more depth today about general revelation. Um, theologians distinguish, and I think the Bible makes this distinction as well, between special revelation, which is God's word, both the written word and the word incarnate, and general revelation, meaning the creation, which includes us and our conscience. So general revelation is general in a couple ways. It's general in that it goes out to everybody. Everybody hears it. Everybody um, has to deal with it, with God speaking. It's also general in the sense that it doesn't get into the specifics of the plan of redemption. And so in, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about you know, what is plain. God has made certain things plain to all people, whether they're Christians or Jewish or whether they've understood the Bible or ever read the Bible. There are certain things that God has made plain. But what he hasn't made plain is that he sent Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners, and all who call upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That's not a message that's in general revelation, right? But general revelation is still an important thing to understand. Psalm 19, I mentioned it yesterday, but let's read it now. Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4, it's on your outline. For the director of music, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he, meaning God, has pitched a tent for the sun. Now, th this is a very dynamic, active idea here. See, I think what, it's, it's interesting, like in our sort of modern debates about evolution versus intelligent design, we kind of, I think, sometimes think that the creation we can appeal to, it's just a static thing sitting over here. It's an opportunity for us to use to sort of prove that God exists if you turn to it and look to it. But that's not what Psalm 19 says. Psalm 19 doesn't say, hey, God has built into the creation a great little illustration for you to use. No, he says that this, this creation is proclaiming, pouring forth speech. You see? It's not just a static you know, things sitting over in the corner that you can point to, it's already shouting at everybody that lives. I mean, this is the, the, the kinds of things that are used here, you would expect it to say, God's word is pouring forth speech and proclaiming, or God's people, or God's prophet, or God's, you know, minister are proclaiming. But he says this about the creation. So I want you to see, it's general, there's no language. In other words, there's no group of people who haven't heard this revelation. And it goes out 
uh, in a very dynamic way, in a very active way, right? God reveals himself not just through his word and his son, but through the creation, and the creation is preaching at people, pouring forth speech. So that's the doctrine of general revelation, all right? Hold that in your head, because we're going we're gonna to put these three together, and I'm going to pick up in, uh, after we talk about sin and idolatry, how this all fits together and why it matters. But the, the, the point I'll make now is general revelation means, like I said yesterday, that anything that people use to make culture or art is something that God has already made that is stamped with meaning, that is pouring forth speech. <laughs> everything, everything that exists has a built-in message. And a lot of times we don't like that message. We try to make it say something else. I'll give you an example. After the fall, I know this is jumping ahead a little bit because this is really this gets into idolatry, but it's hard to kind of wait because you may not. I'll just say one example now. I'll give another example there. Um, before the fall, there was work to do. You know that? Work was given before the fall. Work is not a product of the curse. Work is cursed. But Adam and Eve were set to a job to cultivate, again, to bring out all the God-glorifying potential in the garden and to spread it, to multiply it, to take dominion of the earth. Now, that's what God says work is about. Work means God's glory. God's glory is so much bigger, and there's so much more opportunities for cultivating God's glory than we realize. That's stamped into the meaning of work. But after the fall, we try to make work mean a lot of other things. We try to make work mean, I don't need anybody else. I can take care of myself because I've got a good job. I have financial security, whatever that means, right? So we try to make work say something else. Or we try to make work say, I'm valuable. I matter because I've reached a certain plateau in my career. We try to make work say all kinds of things. That's not what God made it to say. So there's always going to be tension and breakdown when you're trying to make something say something that God never made it to say. And that's part of this tension. And Christians do that and non-Christians do that. What we're all interacting in everything we do with God's stuff that is stamped with meaning. Right? All right. Um, let's talk about common grace. Common grace. Um, common grace is this idea that God doesn't just pour forth speech and speak to everybody. He actually gives good gifts to everybody, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Do you understand this? This is called common grace. Um, again, it's common in the sense that it's common to everybody. And it's common rather than special grace in that it, it's not saving grace. But it still can be described as a gift, and a good gift of God. There's a couple passages that talk about this. One of the best is in Acts 14. And I have it here on the outline, so let's look at this. Acts 14, verses 15 through 17. Paul is preaching in the pagan town of Lystra. This is where when the people hear them, they decide that, um, is it Paul and Barnabas in this country? Or I can't remember. Uh, Paul and whoever's with him at that point, forgive me if I just slipped my mind there, um, they preach, and the, these people figure that this must be Zeus and Hermes. Um, the gods have come down to them in human form, and they, they want to start offering sacrifices to them. And Paul, you know, tears his cloak and says, you know, we're men just like you, right? 
And as he goes, goes on, th th that's where I picked up the verse here. He says, men, meaning these, these people in Lystra, why are you doing this? We too, only, we too are only men, human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. Now that's talking about what there? Uh, general revelation. But now he goes a little further here. He says, he, meaning God, has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. That's a pretty remarkable thing for Paul to say to people who don't believe in God. Not the Christian God, right? He says that this God has filled your hearts with joy. Now, if you've ever read the book of Philippians, joy is a pretty loaded theological word for Paul. He talks about you know, joy is being something that is produced by God. It's not something you just sort of lump up. And here Paul says that to, to pagans, to people who, who don't worship God, the true God, that he has shown them kindness, that's why we call it common grace, and has given them joy in their hearts. And how has he done it? There's two things that Paul says. One, through rain, the natural creation. It makes it rain on the just and the unjust, it says in another place in the Bible. But also through crops. Now crops are important because crops are not just natural. They're a result of human culture. Taking the stuff that God has made and working with it to make it work better. Right? It's, it's, it's cultural production here. Crops. The word culture actually comes from cultivation. It comes from crops. This idea. So here Paul is saying... That God has given joy into your hearts, whether you're a Christian or not, through natural creation, gifts, rain, and through human culture, cultivation. That's a pretty interesting thing, right? My friend Ben Inman, who used to be an RUF campus minister, puts it this way. Paul says that Lystra is a place full of God's grace. Blessings from God are present and available in pagan culture. And these are not only good, but they are expressions of God himself, his testimony, in which his kindness is demonstrated. His gifts include natural blessings like rain, but also human cultural products like crops. And he fills the hearts of pagans through these good gifts. Right? So, the point is, all of us, if you would be a Christian, if you would understand what Christianity is about, you need to understand that Christians are supposed to recognize that God gives good gifts, even joy, to people who are outside of the Christian community. Uh, actually, did somebody want to read? Somebody got a Bible? You got a Bible. Look up Psalm 145, 8 and 9. <coughs> somebody else, who else got a Bible? They can get too quick. You do, right there. Will you look up Psalm 104, 14 through 15? Yeah. 145, yeah, 145 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Mm -hmm. On all he has made. There's a sense in which the Bible can say that certainly God has special love for his people, but he also, the Bible also says he has compassion on all that he has made. And the other one, Psalm 104. 14 through 
14 and 15, yes. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for men to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread that sustains his heart. Yeah. So all these good, these are good gifts. Wine, oil, bread, right? You don't just pick bread off the trees. Uh, and these are good gifts. And we're to praise God. This is in the context of Psalm 104 about things to praise and glorify God for. Right? And he doesn't say it's only Christian bread and Christian bakers that you should thank God for. You know? I despise. Do they still have these shepherd's guides? People used to always want to drop them off at our church, which are basically like the yellow pages of only Christians, so you can only ever interact with Christians. I despise those. Don't you ever contribute to those or be a part of those things. Right? Because God gives good gifts through all kinds of people, whether they know Jesus or not. All right? Um, and here's what's interesting. Um, it means that you don't have to, if you're a Christian, you don't have to feel guilty or try to explain away the good cultural productions of people who don't know Jesus. You don't have to feel guilty about it. You don't have to try and say, well, it's really not good because they don't know Jesus. I know it seems really good, but it can't be. No, you don't have to say that. You don't have to say that. We should ponder and esteem whatever is good. And we mustn't be guilty of thinking that all that people who aren't Christians do is evil and everything that Christians do is good. It's a terrible theological error and a terrible mistake and incredibly arrogant. And it's not biblical. And the, the, the Reformed tradition has long recognized this. John Calvin um, puts it very well. He's sort of the father of at least you know, the modern expression of the Reformed tradition. Um, Calvin goes so far as to say that God's spirit can be, be behind a work of art. In Exodus 31 and 35, where it's talking about uh, the temple, Calvin says this about that passage. He says that the understanding and knowledge of Bezalel and Ahaliah needed to construct the tabernacle had to be instilled in them by the Spirit of God. The God is the Spirit of God is the one that enabled them to do this good work and this good artistic work. And there's another place, a very famous statement from Calvin's Institutes, where he says that we must honor the work of the Spirit... Wherever truth is found, here it is, listen to this. If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. This is where the idea that all truth is God's truth comes from. What Calvin is saying is you would be dishonoring Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, almost, if you don't regard truth as truth wherever you found it. And he says this, guys, in the context of talking about Plato and Aristotle and Greek philosophers. He doesn't say this about the Bible. So what he's saying is, if there is truth out there and you fail to regard it as truth and esteem it as truth, even if it's produced by people who don't know God, you're dishonoring the Spirit of God. That's the Reformed tradition. Now, not everybody in the Reformed tradition is held to that. I think there have been a lot of times where fundamentalism, the idea that sort of wants to make this black and white thing, that if you're a Christian, everything you do is good. If you're not a Christian, everything's bad. And we need to sort of come into our little holy huddle and keep all those bad people away from us, right? Um, th that mindset has affected a lot in the Reformed tradition. But it's not what the Reformed tradition is about, and it's not what the Bible is about, all right? Now, this is an important point. This, these doctrines, common grace, general revelation, are very important for how we think about what is too common, this distinction made between high art and pop art. 
It's a distinction that really arises in the 19th century. I don't know if you know that or not. It's, a, it's an actually a pretty a recent distinction. And it comes in a very, well, I, I can't, there's no other way to say it. It comes in a racist context. It's not something that Christians should be embracing. It's not something the Bible embraces. The Bible nowhere talks about high art versus pop art, right? Um, there's a number of books where you can look at this. If you really want to explore this in depth, there's a guy, Arthur Levine, or sorry, Lawrence Levine, who wrote a book called Highbrow, Lowbrow, The Emergence of Cultural Hierarchy in America. Um, that book by Bill Romanowski there, um, Eyes Wide Open, talks about this a little bit. He actually has a whole entire book just on this high art, pop art uh, distinction and why it's um, a fallacy. And that one is called Pop Culture Wars, which these days, it's been out for a while, and I don't even think it's in print, but you can find it probably for a couple bucks on Amazon or half.com or somewhere like that. So if you want to follow that up a little bit, I encourage you to do that. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a terminology that doesn't work. Here's why it doesn't work. It, it, you, every book that I read that tries to make this argument, and, and usually it's Christian books that make this argument want to say, well, high art is worthy of Christians involving themselves in, but pop art is shallow and you know, not worthy of real effort and investment. And, and what they usually tend to do is they tend to, at times, try to draw a dividing line between what is high art and what is pop art. But every one of these books you read, you've, you've realized that where they draw the line is pretty arbitrary and doesn't really make a lot of sense. For instance, generally, people will regard jazz as high art. I mean, you know, they play it at Carnegie Hall. There's a famous concert in 1937 at Carnegie Hall of jazz. So for a long time, jazz has been played in sort of venues where high art supposedly is done. Now, what you don't maybe don't know is that these venues where we do high art, classical music, opera, those things, those actually date to the 19th century as well when they were used for that. And what happens is the Western European immigrants, who basically are populating our country at that point, begin to feel threatened by Eastern European immigrants that are coming in the late 19th century. And at that point, they cordon off these institutions. And they basically you know, pour money into these things. And they create a whole separate culture that the poor recent immigrants aren't part of and can't be part of. In the 19th century, in the middle of the 19th century, people went to Shakespeare with rotten fruit and vegetables. It was like vaudeville. It wasn't something that you went and did you know, in a very high pollutant, refined kind of way. No. And neither was the music. People would yell and scream and all kinds of things. It wasn't the situation where you just are absolutely quiet and still, like you're in the presence of God himself. It, that kind of, that, that really is a very recent development, right? And, and it t ties in as well with classical music. There used to be a lot more improvisation that went along with classical music. I hope you music majors know that. Um, there was a lot more, whereas now there's been a development that it's like, you know, don't, don't mess with the notes. They're sacred. They're, it's regarded as like this holy document that you may be able to, within a certain framework, have some interpretation of it. You know, maybe on a cadence you can do some improvisation. But, but that's, that, the, a lot of those things have changed as people have begun more and more to treat certain aspects of culture as high culture and then certain aspects as pop culture, right? Um, what happens a lot of times, right, people say, well, jazz is high art, but, you know, rock and roll is pop art. But I can tell you, somebody that plays both of those styles, it's, I don't really see a whole big difference. I think it's, it, 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 there's no real musical way to argue that jazz and rock, which both are cousins because they both come from the blues, 
are really significantly different art forms, that one of them is high and the other one is not. It's very arbitrary. It doesn't really work. And again, what I'm arguing for is thinking about culture as maps of reality. Therefore, you know, Mozart is a map of reality just like Robert Johnson and just like Led Zeppelin, right? It, they're all maps of reality. And I, you know, what I find is a lot of the critics who, who sort of thumb their nose and look down on styles like, you know, rock and rap and blues and all those sorts of things, they, they never have really invested often the time to really understand those genres for themselves and what really makes them well. What they've done in a lot of ways is they've derived certain criteria for how music is supposed to work. And they've derived it from examining what makes this piece, you know, often it's Bach, you know, a lot of the rules of music theory come from analyzing Bach's music, even though Bach didn't write according to the rules, and he breaks them all the time, right? But they analyze that, and they say, well, here's what you can't do. You can't do parallel fifths, all right? Well, if you go hear sacred harp singing, do you know about sacred harp singing, shape note singing? They use parallel fifths and parallel octaves all over the place. As a matter of fact, it's one of the things they love to do. Do you know that the way shape note singing, if you've never heard it, is this really eerie, a cappella, four-part harmony way of singing. It's awesome. You should go to a Sacred Harp singing sometimes. Sacred Harp is an old um, 19th century hymn book. But it's a way of singing that was popular in America. It's the way people sang um, before the Revolutionary War. And in certain areas, mostly in the South, but now it's spread to other people, they still sing this way. Okay? And if you go and listen to this, it's fascinating. What happened, Lowell Mason and some other folks, they were called the, the Better Music Movement in Boston in the early 1800s, and they had some other friends down in New York. They basically came in, they're the ones who got public education, music in public education. They're the ones that said, we need to, over here in America, adopt European standards of how we do music. We need to take those rules. This is better music over in Europe. We need to bring it over here, and we need to quit making people sing, uh, not let people sing like they used to. <coughs> it's true. You know, that, so there, a lot of the things that we just take for granted, it's always fascinating to look into the history and how some of these develops happened, okay? Um, I think that's enough on that high art, pop art distinction. Anybody, questions or thoughts on that before I jump ahead to the next thing? Anybody? Okay, well let's keep going. Sin, idolatry, and trying to mute God's speaking. Let's read Romans chapter one, verse 18 through 21. Apostle Paul says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that all men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. A couple things to, to draw out from this text about sin and idolatry, and tying into these things we've been talking about, general revelation and common grace. The first is, God's wrath is part of his ongoing speaking in general revelation. And we do need to be careful here. I don't think the Bible encourages or supports at all drawing a one-to-one -one correspondence between a particular sin and a particular tragedy in your life. I think um, the Bible doesn't encourage that. As a matter of fact, it's, it says not to do that. Um, but I do think that this passage is, is helping us understand that suffering in the world 
is part of God speaking, saying that all is not right with the world. In a general sense, that, that all is not right with the world. And part of that is because people have turned away from God, and God's not happy about that. His wrath is being revealed from heaven, Paul says. Um, I remember a, a friend of mine telling me that for when he was in college and just after college, he was part of this group of friends that really spent all their time getting together studying different customs and rituals surrounding death in various cultures, you know, trying to understand and figure it out. He wasn't a Christian. He's still not a Christian guy. And trying to, and I was, I was really interested in this. I was asking him. He was really into death metal and all that stuff as well. I was, remember asking him, you know, what, what was the attraction to this? And it, he said it was trying to basically get a handle on death and get an understanding where it wouldn't be that big a deal anymore. And may, looking for some kind of cultural ritual that would help us understand that death isn't a big deal. That's like, well, death is a big deal. You know? And so here's a great example. A lot of rituals have developed, a lot of culture has developed to try to, to, try to mute what God is saying. The fact that people die means that all is not right with the world. It doesn't mean no big deal. Uh, my wife used to work at Vanderbilt Hospital. Do you know that nobody dies at Vanderbilt Hospital? People expire every day. They don't use the word death in the hospital. They say expire. Well, see, that's, that's a way of trying to mute God speaking. Try and make it to be a natural process of life. Death is just part of life. No, it's not. There's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of culture that's developed around trying to say something very different than what God is saying, all right? Um, all human culture, Paul is saying, uses God's creation, which is declaring his glory. In other words, I've said this several times, but again, I'm going to harp, harp on this a lot. All culture, art and pop culture included, has meaning. It has meaning because it's interacting with what God has said through general revelation. Christians are wrong to consider it trivial, and postmodernists are wrong to consider the meaning to only be in the one who receives it and gives the meaning to it. The meaning is not solely from the one who makes the culture. It's not solely from the receiver who gets to impose whatever meaning he or she wants on it. The meaning is intrinsic to it because God spoke it into being and it's part of his creation which speaks. So th this is very helpful to understand. Very important to understand. Christians who treat a lot of culture and art as trivial need to understand it can't be trivial because it's interacting with what God is saying. Any conversation with God is important. And all the culture, all the songs, all the movies, all the books that you read, they're all a conversation with God, whether they realize it or not, because they're interacting with what he said. Right? It's true. The postmodernists don't believe that. They think, of course that the meaning is something that, you know, the one who uses it or, or reads the book, right, is the one who gets to give the meaning. That there can be no meaning that comes, that transfers from one person to another. But that's not true. The meaning is built into it. And you know that. We know that. Uh, let me give you another example. Sex. Our culture, in a lot of ways, wants to say that sex has a couple meanings. One, sex is a way of saying, I think you're hot. I dig your body, all right? But God has said that what sex means is I'm committed to you. I, I, right? God has stamped meaning into sex. 
And you can try and use it to say something else, but it will always backfire on you. It will. Now, you know, that doesn't mean that God can't bring healing and redemption, but it means that as long as you or people you know are trying to use sex to say something different from the meaning it has, you're going to be fighting with it. Right? C.S. Lewis has a great, great place where he talks about, you know, going to a, to a, a village and going into this nightclub. And you're, you guys remember this little story? I think in your Christianity, I'm not wrong. This is my paraphrased version of it. But you go into this nightclub, and, you know, it's dark lights, and there's kind of this music, dum, 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 right? And there's this curtain, and all of a sudden, you know, the, slowly the curtain is, is pulled up, and boom, all of a sudden you, it's a cheeseburger. And everybody in the club is like hooping and hollering and going nuts. And, and he says, you know, if you, if you came upon the scene, you would consider that these people must be starving, or else the cheeseburger must be more than just food. In other words, if sex is just a biological function, why does, it, why does it function so powerfully in our culture, right? It means so much more than that, and everybody knows it, right? All culture has meaning. It's all a conversation with God. Um, and here's what Paul says, that unbelievers are involved in trying to suppress what God is saying. The conversation is one in which God is speaking, and unbelievers are saying, no, I don't want to hear it. God has written, this means this, and we're trying to erase it, and write a different meaning to it. Idolatry is the way we do this. Idolatry is the way we take the good creation of God and we turn it into something that he never intended it to be. We try to make it mean something he never meant it to be. Idolatry is the way we do that. We make idols out of God's good gifts. The good gifts are supposed to lead us to praise and glorify God. But you see here in Romans 1, Paul says... They neither glorify God, they don't glorify God. Instead, they worship the created things, Romans 1 teaches us. They suppress the truth and righteousness. They try to block out what God is saying. And then they basically say something else about the creation. Rather than it being God's way of speaking to them about himself, they try to turn it into God itself. You see that? Idols are things we make out of God's good creation in attempting to mute what he is trying to tell us. God is proclaiming his glory in creation. Mankind is trying to twist it for his own glory. All culture and all art is a complex combination of interacting with God's general revelation and trying to grasp the eternity he's set in the hearts of all people and our idolatry. Ecclesiastes 3 has this great thing where it says that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men, yet he's frustrated their ability to connect the dots. So people have this longing that they're not, they can't really figure out, they can't ever grasp what they're, they're reaching for. So that's what's going on. And then if you get into Romans 7, if you stop at Romans 1, you may think, well, this is true of pagans, people who aren't Christians, and, but it's not true of us. You know, we would never do that. Well, you get to Romans 7, and you find that our hearts aren't pure either. The point is, everything created by humans whether they're young Jesus or not, interacts with God speaking, and nothing created by humans, even Christians, is unstained by sin. So what are some implications of this? Well, the first, we must give credit where credit is due. 
and not pretend that Christian culture, quote unquote Christian culture, is automatically better than non-Christian culture. I like this uh, quote from Catholic writer Walker Percy. He says this, that bad books lie, and they lie most of all about the human condition. Bad art lies, and it lies most of all about the human condition, honestly. And Christian art tends to be the worst at this. It tends to lie about the human condition all the time. Thomas Piquet paintings lie about the human condition. <laughs> they do. But, but he thinks he's giving glory and giving a testimony to who God is by his paintings, because there's always light and sort of glory in there somewhere. But it lies about the human condition, right? Too often Christian culture lies about the human condition, pretending that faith means not seeing the ugliness of life in a fallen world. Right? There's a great article a few years ago in GQ by this guy Walter Kern, K-I-R-N, and you can find it if you Google it. Um, and he talks about how he spent 30 days completely, he's not a Christian guy at all, he spends 30 days completely immersed in the Christian subculture. He only watches Christian TV shows. He only logs on to Christian websites for his news. He only does Christian aerobics, you know, at his house in front of the TV. He only eats Christian food. You know, there's a, a book on what would Jesus eat. And so he, he follows that for, for these 30 days. Um, he only listens to Christian music, of course. He only watches Christian movies. Um, and then he writes about it what it was like to live in this subculture for 30 days. And it's an amazing article. You really should, really should read it. Um, and he, he talks a lot. He develops this idea that after he's been in sort of the Christian subculture for 30 days, he says, he refers to it as the ark culture. Like we're on Noah's ark. Like the whole world is, you know, the big ugly world, evil world is out there, but we've created this safe little existence in here in the ark. And one day he says... He logs on to crosswalk.com uh, for his news, which he was doing most every day. And he says, um, the headline, the headline, the most important thing in the world that day for the news, you ready? Pastor fined for rebuking a lewd woman. That was the most important thing in the news that day. <laughs> and he, he, he looks at it, he's like, wow. Like, he's been in the Christian culture for quite a while now. He's pretty far into his experiment, but even that just like, he just doesn't even have categories. He's like, you know, a world in which pastors rebuke people, or a, 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 a world in which um, lewd women get rebuked, a world in which the word lewd is even used, must be, <laughs> must be a really safe, comfortable small town little world. He, and he says, I'm tempted to jump off the ark, turn on the TV and see what the real world is actually up to today. But why small, why spoil the small town innocence? Right? Do you think people are interested in becoming Christians and basically shutting themselves off to the reality of the world we live in? Because that's what a lot of them think it means to become a Christian. And if all they ever imbibe to understand who we are is Christian culture? Oh my gosh. Right? Now, the good news is, most Christians never even go into a Christian bookstore. <laughs> That's good news. Right? It's, uh, I love bookstores, but I don't like a lot of Christian bookstores. I can't. I like can't. I go to his store. Um, 
but goodness, you know, I go into Lifeway and it's just a zillion copies of the top ten Christian books and music and all this stuff, and I just wonder how much of it is dealing with reality, right? If your parents work for Lifeway, so be it. Um, <laughs> when it. But when it was the Baptist bookstore, it was great. They had all kinds of books about all kinds of things. When they became Lifeway, um, they decided just to market the, the most popular Christian books, and it's kind of pointless. Um, all right, so that's the first interaction. The second, or the first implication, the second is we, ha we can't be naive. I would say for well, most Christians today, most of y'all probably err on the side of not thinking as much as you should about the art that you're involved in appreciating. Um, I would encourage you to think that, uh, and remember that all culture is religious. All culture is a map of reality attempting to interpret the real world. And we need to reflect theologically about that. Right? I had a seminary professor who used to um, give his kids, it was like a nickel for every lie that they heard on television. Right? And in other words, you know, there was a study years ago done that kids that watched, what was it, like 30 minutes a day? versus kids that watched a couple hours a day. The kids that watched 30 minutes a day were more influenced by the 30 minutes than the kids who watched two hours. It's true, because they don't learn how to basically build up defenses and to shut off sort of, you know, the, the kids tend to be more gullible when they only watch a little bit of TV. You have to teach your kids how to listen to what's being said and respond to it. Just like when you read a book. Do you read a book to have a relationship with the author? Do you watch a movie? saying, this is saying something about the world. At places, I think it speaks wonderfully and beautifully about this. Other places, I'm not sure I agree with this, but then wrestling with it, maybe they're right and I'm wrong. What do I think about this? I'm not saying you just go say movie and say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is what I already agreed with, great, I like that. No, I'm saying let, let the art, the art may need to tell you that you're wrong. Because they, they, they're interacting with what God is saying and they may be hearing something that you're stopping your ears up and you don't want to say. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a friend of mine a few years ago who was shopping her music around and had some different record labels interested in signing her. Um, some were in the Christian music field, some were in more the folk music field. And what was fascinating and incredibly sad was when all the labels actually saw her, she, she wasn't the most beautiful person, the folk labels could care less. They were still interested. None of the Christian labels were interested anymore. Uh, my friend Derek Webb likes to say, go into any Christian bookstore, look through the CDs, and see if you can find an ugly Christian artist. <laughs> you can't. And that's not true in the secular world. So what, what I'm saying is, beauty and a worldly sense of what's beautiful is more powerful in the Christian subculture than it is in the world. And we need to hear that, right? We think we've got it all together. We think, you know, well, we're not pagans. We're not doing this and this and this. Yeah, but materialism and false ideas of beauty have such a hold on the Christian community, and we don't listen to it because we're not letting anybody that speaks powerfully about what an evil that is, we're not letting them speak to us. Um, See, um, we may really need to hear things that people outside the Christian community are saying. Actually, let me, let me rephrase that. We need to hear 
things, not just so that we know how to evangelize them, but because they may be hearing things that we're not hearing. And we have a theological basis for that. You don't have to just say, well, um, I don't know how, but this you know, person, they're not a Christian, but they said something that was true. Huh? I don't know what to do with that. Well, no. God's behind it. Right? <coughs> Second, it's also important to interact with the arts to understand the idols of your culture that you live in. And that is helpful for learning how to present the gospel in a meaningful way. The arts and popular culture often are going to help you understand what are the things that really matter, what are the things that people praise, and what are the things that people rage against. And, and you, you need to hear that. You need to know that, right? Because whatever you or our culture or your non-Christian friends are trying to get, are looking for, are longing for, they already have, or we already have in the gospel. Let me put it this way. Idols, you don't make idols just out of the blue. You make idols out of good gifts of God. And you make idols to replace things that God has already given you in the gospel. This is very helpful, important to understand. Um, I say it in Chad's life. I say this in every seminar. No matter what seminar it is, I want you to understand this. Martin Luther said this one time. He said that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, you first break the first commandment. In other words, before you lust, you forget who God really is. And you create, turn him into an idol. God is a God who gives me everything I need except in the area of pleasure. And therefore, I'm going to have to get that on my own. But he could never fill my heart with joy. You know, I know, he takes care of making sure I go to heaven and not hell. That's good. You know, he's given me some friends, so I'm not completely lonely all the time. But I don't really like myself. But... But as far as filling my heart with joy, uh -uh. you know, looking at porn on the TV is you know, the only thing that does that. Right? We first make God into an idol before we fall into any particular sin. And the particular sins that we run after are connected always to something we've forgotten about God, either what he is, who he is, or what he's done. This is really important. So your idols are always a clue to understand who God is. And the way that God is going to heal you of idolatry is by reminding you of who he is and what he's done. There's particular connection. And so I think it's very helpful. For the arts can be very helpful at exposing our idols. Because a lot of art tends to amplify idols and help us see them and see the destructive power of them. And, and it can be very helpful for us understanding here's a place where I regularly forget that God is who he says he is. So I, I think the arts are very helpful um, about that. All right, so good. We're going to have some questions here, but I'm going to do point three here first. So what about the question of criteria for the arts? And we're going to talk about this more uh, tomorrow when we look at rock music. Um, but, does God give us objective standards, or is it all just a matter of personal preference, or what? Now, I'm going to tell you what I think. My view is while the Bible tells us to commend what is beautiful, it doesn't give us details about what that looks like. There's no illustrations in the Bible. There's no music written out for us to know what the Psalms were sung like. And in fact, beauty is culturally mediated. I talked to you last time about temper tuning on the piano. 
And why the piano sounds in tune is because of cultural mediation. If you ever hear music that, um, there, there, sometimes you can get you know, recordings of classical music where people have tuned the instruments not in temper tuning. And it sounds strange, right? There's no law that says that you have to have 12 tones from C to C, right? In a lot of musics, they don't do it that way. And what's interesting is the 12 tones from C to C, right? It would be every key, white and black on a piano, right? Just 12. Um, a lot of people say, well, that's just, the, you know, those reflect the natural, the natural tones that if you vibrate a string and then you cut it in half, it vibrates and, you, you know, you keep subdividing it and you get these tones, the, the overtone series. Here's the interesting thing. You get far enough on the guitar, you can play it, it's around the third fret. You can play a harmonic, but it's kind of hard to play it. It doesn't come out very clear. But it's a note that's in between, if you're in C, it's in between D, D, you know, D and E, but it's not E flat. It's kind of in between. But you know what note it is? It's the blue note. The blue note that you can't play on the piano, but yet is, is very much, very often sung, or you can play it on a guitar if you bend your string just right, or on a harmonica you can bend it. There's instruments where you can bend it and get that note, that's in the natural overtone series, right? So people that want to say, say, well, you know, there's an objective standard of beauty, and it's music that conforms to these notes, and these <coughs> notes and these combinations, I say that's a bunch of BS. It's not true. It's not true. Temper tuning proves it's not true. The blue note is part of the overtone series, and it's not in the, you know, in the 12-tone scale that we use, all right? If you're a musician, maybe you understand what I'm talking about. Um, if, if you're not, well, we can talk about more if you, if you really care about that. But here's the point. The attempt within music, for instance, to find all cultural music, music that transcends all cultures, is misguided. Um, Bill Edgar cites the example of Eskimo throat game music. Now, I've never heard Eskimo throat game music, but he says it would take you years to understand enough about it to even say this is good and this is bad, right? But it, ha it, it, it doesn't come anywhere near like fitting in and, you know, sort of certain qualities or attributes that we think music has to have. There are a lot of musics out there that don't work that way. And I, I mentioned Jeremy Begbie last year who talks about the same thing. Edgar, Bill Edgar goes on. Bill Edgar actually teaches at Westminster Seminary, but he also has, you know, his master's or PhD in piano performance from somewhere over in France. So he's an excellent pianist, jazz and classical, as well as having his doctorate in philosophy. He's got an amazing book on the arts called Taking Note of Music. It's unfortunately out of print. Very hard to find, but maybe one day he'll reprint it. I hear he's going to try and revise it. All right, so he says this. Um, the music the Psalms were originally set to would sound very strange to your ears and probably would not convey the same emotional meaning to us as it did to an ancient Israelite. Now, I know there are some people who try to make this argument. I think it's completely fallacious. But this argument that Gregorian chant reflects, you know, the music of the temple, which reflects the music that was sung, you know, in the first temple. I don't think there's many people that follow, believe that at all. It's kind of kooks to believe that, who really want to try to argue. And here's how it goes. I mean, I found this on a website one time, that the Genevan psalm tunes that were sung in Calvin's Geneva were based on Gregorian chants, which were based on the Jewish temple music. So in the psalm tunes, which should be, of course, the only tunes that we sing, we actually are singing the original melodies they sang the psalms to. That's nonsense. That's silly. That's just really silly. 
Um, and Calvin's Geneva did get pretty intense about tunes. Louis Bourgeois, who was the guy who Calvin brought from the French court to set psalms to music, he actually got thrown in jail one time for changing one of his own tunes. <laughs> so, you know, I know I get angry letters sometimes for changing hip tunes, but I've never been thrown in jail. And, you know, now Calvin did come to his defense and went to the city fathers and got him out of jail. So Calvin is the one who did it. But, um, but I do think Calvin had this idea that if we could set all 150 psalms to each of them to their own tune, then we were basically done, and we could just sing those. I think that's kind of silly um, because it misses the fact that beauty is culturally mediated. In other words, sounds within like rock music, for instance, sounds that sound to you like power and triumph may sound to your grandparents like noise and anger. It's true. That's why hymn tunes, often older hymn tunes, don't convey the same emotion that they were supposed to. The ones that tend to still convey similar emotion tend to be folk tunes. The hymn tunes that were based on folk tunes tend to work for many generations. But a lot of the other ones don't. They sound hokey to you. They don't sound like they can convey emotion. It's because beauty and all emotions are conveyed through a particular culture, right? Now, it, this is not a completely elastic kind of thing where there's nothing corresponding between this culture and this culture, especially within the stream of Western music. There's overlap, but you have to be very careful about saying, well, the, you know, I, I've seen on websites, sometimes I get into this and I probably shouldn't, but I see on websites, if I Google myself, <laughs> you do that, right? <laughs> it's gotten a lot harder, I'll tell you, since Twitter, because, you know, my name shows up all over the place now, and, you know, TwitPics and all these different things. Anyway, but if I look up my name, so there, there's places you can find, you might find this amusing, there's some guy out there, he's like a music professor in Pennsylvania somewhere, who did this detailed analysis of the tune that we sing in Are You Have to and Can It Be? And how bad it is. And he's got all this musical jargon and blah, 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 blah. And he and a couple, it's like he and like five friends basically keep posting on this one blog. And somebody pointed out to me and said, but don't respond to him. You'll just encourage him. But I did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and it did. It like gave him stuff to talk about for like months and months. <laughs> you know, like if you ever enter into that conversation, then you get like a 10-page response. You're like, oh, gosh. I, I don't have the time to even read all this, let alone respond to it. But people do that sort of thing all the time. But I could turn around and, you know, do the same thing to Immortal Invisible and show you why, you know, it's a pretty simple tune. There's not much to it, but I, I think it works well. Um, anyway, so there, there's a lot of silliness out there. Um, last point, what I'd say, um, well, you know, there are, there are certain things, you know, there are certain things that work. In other words, because we live in an orderly universe that God has made, when you pluck a string, it vibrates and produces a tone. So w when you make music, you still have some limits because of what God has made. So I want to say that, that there is, you're interacting with what God has made, and it only, strings vibrate, right? They don't create sound any other way. Um, so there is some, you know, it's not completely relativistic, but there are lots of different ways that you can make a string vibrate and lots of ways you can um, sort of develop God's um, potential that he's built into creation, right? 
Um, so culture, beauty is mediated through culture. There's not some somewhere, you know, there, there have been composers that thought, you know, believed in this idea of the music of the spheres, that you can sort of, you know, play like, you know, the perfect chord. Who's it? It's a Russian guy, wasn't it? Did it have that? Was it? No, I think it was somebody else. They had this idea that if you can get the, the it was one of those guys that would see colors when he, you know, would hear music. Um, but he, he had this idea, if we could just play like the right chord, we would, you know, we sort of ushered in, you know, utopia in some sort of way. There's some people that believe that kind of thing. Um, and I, there's some Christians, I think, that almost seem to, to believe that. You know, that, like I had a guy come up to me, a pastor in the PCA, of all things, and say, um, I think that, well, he told me, I said, I think we'll only sing Bach in heaven. I said, really? It's like, I don't even know how to talk to you. you know? <laughs> I told him, I said, he said, well, Bach is the best music. I said, well, why don't we just sing over and over the best bar that Bach ever wrote, right? Because there, surely some that he wrote was better than others, so why not just only sing the best? If you're only going to sing the best, that was his argument, we should only sing the best. I said, have you read the book of Revelation? Because it says at the very end there that the kings of all the earth, not just, you know, one town in Germany, bring their glory into the heavenly city, right? So that's a very important idea. And here's the other point I'll make about this. First, at some points, to me, this gets into a Galatians issue. Do you know what the book of Galatians is about? The book of Galatians is about you do not have to adopt a particular cultural expression to be a true Christian. That's a very important issue. So much so that Paul says, if, if you don't believe that, you're preaching another gospel. Now, you have to be careful when you get into these issues because there are people that argue with me sometimes. I say, I think you're getting dangerously close to saying that this particular cultural expression is the only one that pleases God. Look out. At some level, that becomes heresy. Heresy. Not just misguided ideas. So, for instance, if we in the PCA, I know you all are from the PCA, but Belmont would hardly ever get people from the PCA background, all right? But I'm saying, talking about my denomination that I'm an ordained minister in. If we are communicating that the best worship and what you really need to do to be a good worshiper is sing 17th century, you know, cultural expression of music, gosh, we've really, we've really went astray. And I think it, it's, it's connected. It's hard to say, this is good. Bach is great. Mozart's great. This stuff's wonderful. But so is this. It's very hard to say this is good and this is good too. You know? But I think that's what you have to be able to say. And that's why I'm going to talk about uh, a little more next week. But be very careful to, to not elevate preferences or let people elevate preferences to the level of saying this is the pure expression of the gospel in cultural terms. Because Paul says that's another gospel. So, anyway, thought, I, got, I got a minute or two for questions. Thoughts or questions? Surely that's doing something. Yeah. I have a question. You talked about meaning. Yes. Um, so, you said the author and the uh, reader don't give the text meaning. I would say, yeah, let me clarify that. Talking about meaning, the author and the receiver don't give it meaning, but God does. I would say, it like ideas that say that the meaning is solely from the author 
or solely from the receiver are misguided, that it's already stamped with meaning, and both the author and the receiver are in a complex relationship dynamic with God and the meaning that he's stamped into it. So it's a conversation between all three? Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. It's a conversation between all three. Yeah, other thoughts? And if you want to pursue that further, I listed an article by this guy, Turnow. It's on a well, well, ransom, um, ransomfellowship.org. It's an excellent article. It came out in the Calvin Theological Journal a few years ago. It's called Theological Reflection Upon Popular Culture. And he, he develops that a lot more, about why that's an important idea for responding to postmodernism, and then why it's an important idea for responding to most evangelical Christians. And a lot of what I had to say today is indebted to what he says in that article. So definitely, you should get that article. Ransomfellowship.org is actually an excellent website for things having to do with Christian thinking on culture. So you should, you should definitely search around on that website. It's really great. Brett? It's kind of like relative to you, like, um, just good and possessed. Where is there a need to ruin any room and is there a room to stay between that? Yeah, for sure. I think I'll bring that out more next week. But I would say there are things that are commendable, and then there are things that are bad. I, I think that things that are trite, that don't, um, that don't uh, image the fact that God is a creative God, that's not commendable. Yeah, I don't have a problem saying that this is bad, this is poorly done, and this is maybe a, a commendable aspect of this, but there are a lot of aspects of this that are not commendable. Yeah, but I, what I'm arguing for is that you make those kind of criteria come from the art form itself, and that they, in other words, you, you don't ju judge a jazz piece according to how Bach did music. I think you, you, you'll end up really not being true to this artwork itself and to the way it works, right? You need to really understand why does this work the way it does? And then that helps you figure out some of the ways that you can say this is commendable within this genre. Now, of course, there are things, especially today, a lot of cross-genre convergence of different things, and that's another aspect that you can think about. Is it good? Does this work? Does it bring out new creative possibilities? Does it not work because it goes so far that it breaks the form? See, there's a tension, sort of a, sort of a continuum between being trite and not at all creative within the form, and then going so far that you've broken the form and it's no longer even makes sense at one level. But yet, not making any sense may be part of what you're trying to say. So there's lots of ways to think about it. But I think we'll get into that in a lot more detail. It's hard to talk about that in abstract. It's easier for me to give you like a bunch of things that I think you could use to think about a piece of rock music. And I think that'll get your creative juices flowing and thinking about other, other styles and other forms. This is kind of what music critics do, right? Um, so I'm trying to help all of you be better at music appreciation, music critics, because I can't, can't help you with everything else. I took two semesters of art history in college, and all of my teachers went on strike my last year. So we got to Impressionism, and then the teachers went on strike, and they were on strike till the rest of you know, the semester was over. And I was like, well, that was the stuff I really needed help to understand. But and I had a great art teacher. He, you know, he worked at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. He'd take us on special tours, but you know, they were just picketing around. Of course, all the students thought it was really cool, so they joined the picket lines. I was like, y'all are paying for this, you know, and we're not, they're not making up any of our classes. But. So, you know, that's my excuse for, I, I just don't know much at all about visual art. I'm not even going to attempt to get into that. All right, anything else? Music? All right, y'all need to go to your other seminars.